Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings and welcome to Under Consultation, a podcast guide through the UK video game shows that aired in the aftermath of Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I have a degree in thumb bending. And resisting the urge to sniff Luke's shoes when he leaves the room, I am Ash Versus. This episode of Thumb Bandits aired on the 14th of December 2001, my 16th birthday, and Daniel Beddingfield tops the pops with I've Gotta Get Through This, while Harry Potter does the double, with the Philosopher's Stone topping the video game charts and the UK box office. There's a lot to say about Harry Potter, the franchise, the movie, the author. Let's just keep it simple and relatively civil. J.K. Rowling can fuck off. The kids involved in the Harry Potter movies have all grown up to be to the best of my knowledge absolutely wonderful responsible adults and i think that's it we can move on move on so daniel beddingfield Ugh. so things other things i don't particularly want to talk about i hated this song and actually if we'd have got you know just a couple of weeks before this if we'd have actually managed to get episode one of this show where you know which we thought we were going to be able to get but more on that in a bit we could have had afro man's because i got high and i know he's not exactly a popular person these days either but i at least like that song i fucking hated this song absolutely hated it i was into a lot of radio one at this point as well and i yeah this is not not my particular favorite track of the era mate like two weeks later like if we'd gone the other direction, we could have had the Lord of the Rings. I, well, I, yeah, I know. We we managed to find like a very bad week for us to to find an episode of this show. I, I mean, to be fair, in the case of Potter, a bad month and change. Like yes. it, it, oh, it, yeah. it, it it stuck around a lot. Yes, like a like a fart in a spacesuit. It really did stick around and stunk up the joints. Although I will give some credit to Beddingfield. It was his debut single. It is a great victory for bedroom musicians. He recorded it on his computer in his bedroom with a microphone plugged into his PC. 
And it led on to a career. It led on to remixes. It went to number one, obviously, while we're discussing it here. The one thing I will say, other than the song in itself is kind of creepy, it's a little bit every breath you take in its origins, is that I was thinking, why does this name ring a bell? And it's not because of this song. It's because he appeared in the musical stage version of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds as the artilleryman. And I very much enjoyed Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds and very much enjoyed the stage show. So there's a positive. There's a positive. I mean, like it's it's kind of fun for us to have, you know, Beddingfield here in, in this portion of our timeline, considering that one of the great boons of uh, early British video game scenes, the computer game scenes, was the bedroom programmers. And those bedroom programmers who went on to make things, Worms, one of the games that we got to talk about at length um, during our run on Games Master, was from a bedroom designer. So it's quite lovely here that even, and actually probably even more so as we move into the 2000s, it's the new era of the bedroom programmer, or in this case, the bedroom DJ, who got himself a really good career and a very successful career off the back of this. Not only that, his sister did as well, basically doing borderline the same thing using the connections that her brother had made to launch her own uh, music career. I do love that the inspiration beyond it was a girl called Gina, who he was having a long distance relationship with. And he was very upset because that distance was preventing their love from flourishing. He was in London. Luke, where do you think the girl was? Because it's a long distance relationship. <laughs> uh, was she uh, in uh, the Antarctic? No, a bit closer. Okay, uh, was she in Hull? Bit further. Uh, okay, was she in uh, Ghent? In no. Belgium? Oh, no, okay. no, still a okay. bit closer. Okay, I, I, I'm running out of places that I know. She was in Leeds. Oh, well, that's, well, yeah, that is, that is quite some distance there. I was actually pretty close with Hull. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you were very close with Hull. But also, Luke, you're right, it's quite a distance. It's not like you can just get on a fucking train. Or, you know, or use that 1500 quid that you used to make this song to buy yourself a second-hand motor. Or a whole bunch of, um, I don't know, stagecoach tickets. They were probably cheap at the time. Yeah, getting that one that looks like Daro Brian. Off you go for a two quid or whatever it is. But yeah, I think it's, I get writing songs about lost love, long-distance relationships, there's all that sort of stuff. And I was reading it going, oh, that's really sweet. Wait, Leeds? <laughs> that's not long-distance could have walked there in the time it would have made him to make the song <laughs> he could go up there every weekend and it would have been fine i had a quick look at some other bits of tv news from around this period of time and i've picked out four items here because it ties into our previous history that we've had with this podcast because on the 5th of november bmg became the first major label to release a cd with copy protection which was former games master contestant natalie umbrulia's white lilies island Within two weeks, BMG announced that they had to reissue the disc without the copy protection due to complaints from consumers they were unable to play it on PCs. Copy protection on audio CDs. I mean, okay, I understand why people put copy protection on stuff. Really, I do. Doesn't mean I agree with it. Doesn't mean I approve with it. Something as standardised as a CD, it's difficult to fuck around with because there's a lot of variation there. And CDs at that point had been around a very, very long, long time. Like VHS Macrovision, you mostly got away with it because really the, the, the fucking around was just preventing the signal being interpreted by another VCR. 
playing with the playback on a CD? Mm, no, not a good nope. idea. On the 14th of November, we had the television premiere of The World Is Not Enough on ITV1. This is the Bond film we kept forgetting about and couldn't remember much about. And at this point, I can't remember. Have we talked about The World Is Not Enough? We did, yes, because that was with uh, Robert Carlyle and Denise Richards. We had it as a box office number one towards the end of our Games Master run. That's how unmemorable it is. I completely forgot that we'd covered it. On the 1st of December, former Games Master contestants Anton Deck presented their final edition of SMTV Live, having decided to leave the programmes uh, to concentrate on developing their primetime television careers, which I'm sure came of nothing. Ant, Deck, what can I say? You're leaving. You two are absolutely amazing. Please go back to singing. Get ready to rumble. Please, because I have to get ready to rumble. Get ready. Get ready. Get and rumble. Everybody rumble. I think I bore people silly all around the place telling them how wonderful I think the two of you are. I can't believe there's no more looky like you won't eat on I'm really sorry that I couldn't come and say goodbye in person, but um, you know, it's far too emotional for me. I'd just like to say that I'm Jack. You should go back home to Newcastle and get some proper jobs. Well done, congratulations, and I hope to see you very, very soon. Thank you. Um, what can I say? But thanks to everybody. Thanks to the whole team. Thanks to everybody who's watched the show, SMTV and CDUK over the years. I mean, we really do have a unique relationship, but most of all, thanks a lot to Kat. Come here, Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Dave. See you. And we're going to miss you all. Everybody. And lastly, on the 12th of December, BBC Director of Television Mark Thompson is named as the new Chief Executive of Channel 4, succeeding Michael Jackson in March of 2002. Didn't bring Games Master back, did he? No, he probably tried though, didn't he? Oh, probably. So yeah, but as also mentioned, it's my 16th birthday, uh, the episode that said, and I would have been watching this because I was a viewer of Thumb Bandits. Uh, this was a regular Friday night watch for me. Uh, I mentioned on last week's episode, Bits I was... I'm a bit spottier on where, you know, like memories here and a bit hazy and stuff of watching them. Thumb Bandits, on the other hand, such very, very strong memories of watching this very late at night on a Friday. This was like, you know, five to midnight that this show would, would be on. But staying up to watch this on four later and talking about it with my friends, you know, the few days later at school and stuff, because we were really into our video games at this point. I had a PlayStation 2. My, my friend is going to be getting a GameCube when it arrives on our shores in the in the following year's time. Both me and my two very close friends and my best friends had Game Boy Advances. So, you know, there's a lot about this episode in particular we watched that were, you know, was really resonating with me and this period of time, particularly one of the games that they show later on. I, yeah, have a lot of fond memories of Thumb Bandits. And a lot of that comes from my deep crush on Alex Krotowski, who I should have preached as well. I've, I'm always never sure whether I've said her name right at any point in my entire life. And B, my adoration for Ian Lee because I was a big fan of the 11 o'clock show. I know, hello and welcome to the 11 o'clock show. It's the 21st show and our last of the series. Aww. Thank you, sir, for leading that one. But that's okay, because we're here in two weeks' time with a Christmas special. Yay! 
Now, one man who'll definitely be having a special Christmas is Roy Keane. The Manchester United player has just signed a new contract, earning him £52,000 a week. Now, we've been on air for seven fun-packed, crazy weeks, and in that time, Roy will earn... Well, it's a fuckload of money, I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> but we started way back when on, I think, the 26th of October, 27th, 28th, can't quite remember. I wasn't here, obviously. I was having dinner with Geoffrey Archer at the time. <laughs> Liar. You see? You see what we do? The jokes. But what else... <laughs> are coming, don't worry. But what else has happened during our time on air? Well, Gary Glitter turned out to be the only man in the computer shop with his web pages stuck together. <laughs> Jerry Halliwell's gone blonde and lost her ginger twat, and Vanessa's lost 13 stones. That'll be her husband leaving her. <laughs> Cliff Richard has gone into the charts with Millennium Prayer. Now, that's the words of the Lord's Prayer set to the tune of Old Lang Syne. Now, I'll go over that one more time. Words he didn't write set to music he didn't write. It could only be improved if it was a song that he didn't bloody sing. <laughs> Tony Blair's... You're scary. <laughs> In a nice way. Tony Blair's been strutting around the world stage because he's got his missus up the duff. Poor bloke, he thought he'd seen the last of dribbling and changing nappies when he abolished the House of Lords. <laughs> and I really liked the 11 o'clock show with him and Daisy Donovan, and I also enjoyed the documentary that he did, Thumb Candy, which we'll get onto in a little bit because that is tied into where Thumb Bandits comes in. I remember more of bits than I do of this. And I was trying to work out why. And then when I actually came down to the nitty gritty of, okay, what episode are we doing? Where does that episode sit? And that is a small firework factory we'll get to in a little bit. I looked at the time frame and I'm like, oh, 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 this is a period in my life where things have gone a bit Pete Tong. I got caught in the dot-com crash. So boom, unemployed. Uh, was working part-time at a Weatherspoons just to try and bring some money in. And then the long-term relationship I was in had ended. So I actually moved back home for a while. Not going to get into the gritty of it now. Wasn't in a great place. And so, funnily enough, for the entire like kind of runtime of Thun Bandits, from its first episode to pretty much its end, was quite it's quite a gap in my kind of memory of specifics like i can remember certain isolated incidents but things like tv i wasn't watching a huge amount of certainly not late at night so i was moping a lot and also as well like you know this is a show that spit blink and you'll miss it it's not quite you know it, it didn't have the same shelf life that bits did this is a one and done began airing in november of 01 is off the air by march of 02 and that's it he got its one run and then we never saw nor hide nor hair of it again did get a little bit of press coverage including an article in um i guess the cravat wearing magazine of edge as it was at the time i, I sent you a message earlier about this article going it's quite up its own bum like this is peak edge being superior its opening sentence in this article is quite, quite the hot take. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm sending you a message back being like, this is, it's quite a hot take opener. And you sent me back that gif of Ainsley Harrier going, spicy. And when you consider where we are in our current timeline, you know, end of 01, the fact that Games Master's only been off the air for three years at this point, this is quite the statement to open with. I will quote verbatim, the opening paragraph. Video games and television have traditionally gone together like caviar and custard. Games Master, Bad Influence, Tigs, Bits, all have sought to render an interactive entertainment interesting via a passive medium 
while maintaining high viewing figures and satisfying the hardcore element. Arguably, none have succeeded. So let's time out a second there. (laughs) I was going to say, let's call a pause on that one, yeah. Going backwards... I mean, Bits ran for enough seasons. Clearly, there was something there viewing figures-wise. It was definitely doing well enough to be renewed as often as it was. Alex uh, said on the Retro Hour podcast interview that I referenced on last week's show that it did do very well. Channel 4 were very happy with it. Tiggs, I have no comment on. Bad Influence was very, very popular, renewed for four series. Ran ran right up until the end and travelled all over the world, had exclusives. We covered like really important topics. Absolutely. Yeah, we I think uh, Games Master, I mean, back in Series 2, had that moment about the Sun's articles that they were doing or the newspaper headlines that they were doing about video game and the damage that video games were doing to kids and causing seizures and stuff. Bad Influence tackled that head on and had experts on the show disprove the claims that, uh, that the Sun were making on their front pages. I think that they actually, you know, were doing a lot of really good stuff on that show. And then we start with a show, Luke, you may have heard of it, Games Master. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah, it it rings some bells. I think I might have caught a few ears. I'm I'm pretty sure that lad that was in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels uh, hosted it for a a good portion. Oh, what, Vinnie Jones? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one, that's the one. Yeah, he was on it a few times, yeah. 100 plus episodes seven seasons, a magazine that outlived the show by over a decade and then some. But Luke, none have succeeded. (laughs) Arguably, none have succeeded. And I feel like that arguably in that sentence is carrying a lot of weight. Because what the, the writer wants to put there is none have succeeded. But he, unfortunately, I'm going to presume it to he, cannot look at the actual statistics and facts and figures in front of him and in good conscience write that down. So has to put in there, arguably, none have succeeded. My relationship with Edge magazine has ping-ponged back and forth over the years. I really liked it when it first came out because, ooh, to read a magazine with a nice kind of unusual format, it's got that slightly off, it's not the standard magazine size. And it had really thick covers and glossy paper, and they were all perfect bound. Lovely stuff. But then we get to the actual prose of it. And it goes through periods, but here I'm feeling like this is pretentious. Very much so, yeah. This is, well, I think they probably should have come to us to make this TV show because we would have made a better one. Thank you very much. This is actually just, this is appealing to those those mainstream audiences that we've got no interest in, have we, Hugo? No, we definitely haven't, Hugo. Uh, they're both called Hugo, of course. <laughs> and, you know, we wouldn't have called our thumb bandits. That's, that's far too mainstream. We would have called ourselves the Edge Lords. <laughs> very good. What this is saying is essentially it didn't work for us. Yes. And, yeah, arguably is put there because... That is the sort of statement that will cause arguments and will lead to people being punched out because it's just not correct. I mean, because if you are a writer for Edge and you are writing that sort of sentence, if you have just, you know, remember Series 7 or even Series 6 of Games Master, what you're going to remember is that Domin Mates era, which is not really targeted towards the sort of person that is writing for nor reading Edge. So they probably are going to think, that it is caviar and custard on TV. I suppose the most true element of that opening statement is the satisfying the 
hardcore Bucky O'Hare is element. I mean, they actually put hardcore in Bucky O'Hare is. Maybe that is where Games Master did fail. Maybe that is where Bad Influence did fail. But if you are an edge reader, chances are you will already know a lot of the stuff, a lot of the news that's being imparted on those shows. Although Games World gets off scot-free, doesn't it? Oh, no, that's on the Murdoch network. Hugo, you should know better. (laughs) But they talk about Channel 4 commissioning a new video game show, started broadcasting on November 16th at 11.50pm. So a nice primetime slot. Thumb Bandits is an attempt to combine reviews, news, interviews, features and more out their subject matter into a 28-minute show. 28 minutes, 25 minutes. It's a weird old runtime. But there's an, the next part here, I think it, it kind of highlights something. And I'll, I'll bring up a, uh, we've got a bit of a story to tell with regards to the episode that we've got here, but also a, an interview that I, I've got with Ian Lee, which they write here, scheduled to capture the attention spans of the Friday night post-pub posse, the program makers clearly have a tough task keeping both enthusiast and mainstream viewers happy. In truth, the show got off to a stuttering start, with the first two episodes altering in tone and structure and containing the occasional factual error, a situation not helped by the five-week delay between shooting and broadcast. So we're doing episode three here, and the reason why we are doing episode three is because there's not a complete version of the 13-episode run that Thumb Bandits had, and a lot of the information that is out there about Thumb Bandits and what episode numbers they are and what those episodes contained appear to all be taking information from each other, which is also wrong, but then also amending it to make it further wrong. And when we got down to doing this episode, we had an episode down that was labeled as episode one. I then looked into it and I was like, no, this can't be episode one because they talked about this game in episode one. I know that because Ian Lee literally has said it right here. That is what is in episode one. So it can't be episode one. Oh, okay. Well, I found this place. This is episode two. Nope. It can't be episode two either. Ah, this place is saying it's episode four. Well, we know for a fact it's not episode four either, because at the end of this episode, Ian Lee queues up an episode that isn't the episode that we thought might've been episode four. So (laughs) it took us, I mean, a a lot lot of digging to really piece together what episode this actually was, and if this was the earliest episode we could find in the Thumb Bandits run. Because if you look on YouTube and you look at most of the playlists, and there are a couple of different sources out there, some of them are in one or two parts. I think the one that I link to for this, the video is a lot clearer, but the audio has some distortion on it. So it's kind of a real mishmash. You may use the other version for the clip sourcing for the podcast, but the visual was way better in the other version. There's nine episodes out of 13. So four episodes are somewhere. Lost to time. And you're right. All these different sources are listing off each other. Plus you have interviews with Ian and Alex and that that refer to different things. So I'm sat there going, okay, we think the earliest episode we've got is episode three. We don't know it is actually episode three. And I'm Googling, nothing is coming up that's really helping me here. And then I remember something that I'm both sad and glad I didn't think of earlier in our now over 180 episodes, which is way back in the mists of time, Google bought, well, I mean, Google have bought a lot of companies. They bought some uh, Usenet and newsgroup providers. And they integrated it into Google Groups. Now, what that means 
is that you can not just search Google Groups, you can search Usenet posts going back to year dot. So I went off and I trawled around Usenet circa 2001. So going by the posts there, all of which were negative, apart from ones saying flattering but really not appropriate things about Alex and just really horrible things about Ian, that Ian is correct, episode one featured Max Payne. Episode two, at the very least, I can tell you, included something on Dancing Stage Disney. This was brought to you by a post which said the only redeeming thing about this episode was making me think I should be picking up a second dance mat and a copy of Dancing Stage Disney. Both episodes one and two do not exist online, as far as we can tell. The episode we're covering here appears to be universally, definitely episode three. That is by its numbering on YouTube and again via period Usenet posts talking about the contents within 48 hours of its broadcast date. Now, what is often listed as episode one and what we were going to use as episode one is not episode three, is not episode four, it's actually episode seven. This was identified by both posts made before the broadcast by someone who owned a BBC Micro that was actually used in the filming of the episode and then by the same BBC Micro user group posting about it immediately after the episode. And the reason they were posting, much like most of the people who posted about this show on Usenet, is they were complaining they got something wrong. Yeah, I found a old forum group uh, that were ZX Spectrum enthusiasts uh, that were uh, mighty upset that Thumb Bandits were going to be doing a feature on the Specy and were predicting ahead of time that it's going to be very derogative about the spec, even though, you know, Ian Lee's got a lot of love for the, for the ZX Spectrum and stuff. Then, and then there were posts afterwards that were essentially just arguing with each other about whether or not it was good representation of the ZX Spectrum. And I was like, well, okay, we've got these comments here that could tie into this one. Can we find this episode? No, can't really find that episode either. Well, apparently, and I found this by other um, post mostly regarding this BBC Micro feature in that originally it was all meant to be one feature looking at the BBC Micro, looking at the Spectrum, looking at the other kind of computers of the time and they actually split it out into separate features which is good for the BBC Micro enthusiasts probably. I mean it gave the Spectrum users something to talk about. It was fascinating and terrifying going back and looking at basically the equivalent of Twitter in 2001 and by the equivalent of Twitter I mean there were some lovely people on Usenet. I used to be on Usenet. I was perfectly able to go and find some of my posts there. No, I'm not telling you what my handle was or what I posted from, because some things are best left in 2001. But boy, howdy, there were a lot of people bearing their asses on Usenet because they figured they're just there's no consequences to any of this. And the most shocking thing to me about it was I was reading through these posts about Thumb Bandits and I thought, I know some of those names. I know some of those names from people I knew from the mid to late 90s through to the early to mid 2000s. There's at least a couple of people posting there about Thumb Bandits. I still know today. <laughs> <laughs> because I remember old handles online. I fell down a rabbit hole. It was quite a deep rabbit hole. I do not recommend going to look at Usenet from 2001 you will probably require a shower and walk into conversations you really wish you hadn't seen. 
But the the thing that Edge mentioned in their article, in their write-up about this, is that the first two episodes got off to a bit of a rocky start. And Ian Lee did an interview with Retro Video Gamer uh, where uh, he said, I also remember getting a lot of flack because I reviewed a game that I didn't like and everyone else did. It was Max Payne. Max Payne. And I thought it was lousy. So I said it was lousy. Well, I got a lot of flack from fans of the game, but even worse, games companies threatened to not give us beaters anymore or games to review unless we only said nice things about them. Alex and I were furious and refused. It got very tense. In the end, I capitulated a little and gave an okay review to a really terrible wrestling game just to offer some sort of compromise. That'll be the review we have in this episode. I've got some issues with Ian on that one because that is not a terrible wrestling game. There are terrible wrestling games and the game he's talking about is not terrible. But it's fascinating that here we are only two or three years out from Games Master and we are now seeing the problems that we know other game shows, including the Games Master reboot, had when dealing with publishers of, oh, you want to feature our game? Okay, how are you going to feature it? What are you going to say? Is it only going to be shown in a good light? These are the issues you face nowadays because they've become aware of the market value of video games. When Games Master started, they didn't give a toss. Do you really think Nintendo would have been happy having Dominic Diamond making all those wank jokes while having Mario Brothers sharing the same screen estate? Of course not. I used to work for a, a movie website. I think I might have told the story on the podcast before, but we were dealing with a, a comics book publisher who was sending us comics to review. One of our writers gave a bad review of a comic because he didn't think it was very good. And that comics company pulled all of our access to be like, no. You only got a free copy of it so you could trash us and they just completely cancelled it. And when I say comics publisher, I'm talking one of the major two. And it can be quite a dicey position to be in if you are trying to get access to these things that you can compete against other websites that are larger than you. And some of these companies will just throw their weight around and be like, nope, you didn't say this nice thing about us you won't get access to anything in the future. I mean, cards on the table here. We were very conscious when it came to the Games Master reboot, that we were being given quite a bit of access. We were getting review copies of the episodes because it let us get ahead of the broadcast and actually have only a moderately insane turnaround as opposed to a completely insane turnaround. We got interviews with a lot of the people involved, hosts, showrunners, assistants, all those different people were willing to talk to us. Guests were willing to talk to us. It was great. But I would I would not sacrifice any integrity for that and I'm glad they never asked us to, because unfortunately, for me at least, it would have been a deal breaker. I'd have probably said to you, we can make do without the early access. We can get episodes out 24, 48 hours after it's aired. We can figure it out at some other point. I'm, I'm glad we were never put in that position because we've made jokes about it on this podcast before about, oh, such and such magazine reviewed the game and gave it 95% when everyone else gave it 70% or someone got a free lunch. Yeah, some of these games have got the greatest graphics you've ever seen in your life. Clay Fighters. <laughs> anyway, like even, you know, also in this interview that, that Ian did, uh, they asked him, how was it making the show? It's quite, uh, this is a long answer, so do bear with me. But here is what he said. Really? Not great. It wasn't the show we were told it would be. We wanted to do a kind of top gear for gaming, a serious show that had humor that wasn't overtly silly. I was told we would have a lot of creative input in the show. When it came to it, we had very little and sometimes had to refuse some stuff because it was just piss poor and unfunny and obviously filler. 
One of the things I wanted to do was have Manic Minor Legend Matthew Smith on as a games reviewer. We were told this would work and we kept asking how we were going to reach out to Matthew, but we kept getting fobbed off until eventually we were told it wasn't going to happen. There was too much speeded up footage and nonsense. Now that's how I remember it. A great disappointment. Fun people to work with, but not one of my favorite shows. So I'm amazed when today people come up to me and tell me that they loved it. I'm not going to say they're wrong, but as I've gotten older, I've softened my opinion on it. I do remember that we'd filmed the first five episodes and the production company were all thrilled with them. Because we were in Glasgow, we were miles away from Channel 4. After those episodes had been done, a commissioning editor from the channel came up to have a look. They were furious because they hated the set we were using and demanded that we reshoot the episodes we'd already done. Man alive, that was tedious and expensive. The whole of the rest of the series budget was spent on building a new set and refilming, so the episode looked a bit tatty. And I think that's kind of where we come into those first two episodes that Edge were referring to that were changing tone, changing style, because Channel 4 were making them change the show after it had already been done. And to go back to that period Edge piece, because obviously you've got Ian there talking very frankly, now here's what Tim Brocklehurst, the assistant producer, has to say. Response has been really good. There have been a few disgruntled bits and Games Masters fans, but we've only aired two programmes. We have eight in the can and the programme has come on leaps and bounds, but our audience don't know that yet. And I'm like, oh, you don't mention that Channel 4 shit on you there. I wonder why. <laughs> According to this Edge article, it's drawing in 800,000 viewers an episode, you know, for those first two, which compares to with what Bits was getting. That's pretty solid for the hour that that's on. 10 to midnight, 800,000 views, just under a million. That's pretty good going. But this gets really confusing then because, Luke, I'm still believing that what we're seeing is episode three is episode three, or if nothing else, it is the episode that aired on December the 14th. Because underneath they say, Certainly, the third programme, broadcast on November 30th at 11.30pm, was much better with stronger content and more defined structure. I'm a little bit lost by this as well, because the, the, the list of dates that I've got of when these episodes were released, the first episode was aired on the 16th of November, the second episode on the 23rd, then there wasn't another episode until December 14th, which is the episode that we've got here, which almost feels like episodes one and two aired there was an issue with those between the production of thumb bandits and channel four need to refilm them which kind of lets you have this slight delay this essentially two-week delay between episode two airing and episode three airing this is edge magazine issue 106 it says issue 107 is on sale january 31st I'm thinking that this copy would have been written right on the threshold of that episode either going to air or not going to air. And as it turns out, it didn't go to air. Yeah, that's what my sort of thinking of it as well is that, yeah, it's sort of almost written on the assumption that, you know, this person writing has seen episode three, has been given a, a preview copy of it. And has been told it's going to be broadcast on November 30th, but it actually won't debut. It won't actually be broadcast until two weeks later. And that's not also that uncommon. We've actually seen that in our past on this podcast as well. We even saw it in Games Master magazine, which was a magazine for the Games Master TV show, which had broadcasting dates or broadcasting orders in the wrong places. And skipping back and looking at Edge issue 105, that says issue 106 went on sale December 29th. 
So, yeah, if you take into account printing turnaround, especially because Edge was a glossy magazine, shipping and all that, I, I think they just took a punt. Yeah. The, what they did is they printed what they probably were told by Channel 4, this will be the air date for it. i tell you one thing this has really made me appreciate, Luke. What's that? How well documented Games Master was. <laughs> We did mention this. I can't remember if we mentioned it was definitely on the uh, the wrap up episode we did uh, because, you know, a few people were sort of pointing out that there are a lot of people to thank with regards to Games Master, the people that documented it and catalogued all of those episodes and made them readily available on YouTube for us. Oof, God, did that make our lives so much easier than it would have been if we'd have, you know, if I'd have tweeted you three years ago and said, God, should we do a Thumb Bandits podcast? Because I remember that show from, you know, late 2001 into 2002, because we'd have had an absolute nightmare with it. We'd have also been finished before the pandemic started. It's very true. Um, I very much remember as well, actually, the final episode of Thumb Bandits airing, because once it finished, they had a a live chat thing with i think it was both ian and alex on like the channel 4 website on the thumb bandits website and my mate going on there basically just because he wanted to trash the xbox because he'd come up with the very very funny name for it as at least he thought the why bother and he wanted to get that across and he wanted to be able to tell alex that in the chat room and he told me that she thought it was very funny good on your mate i'm and i'm sure he's not lying the one thing edge magazine's article does give us is it gives us an idea of at least what they've been told the viewing figures are talks a bit about its presenters ian lee as you mentioned the 11 o'clock show and alex krotowski from bits and says they're both genuine gaming enthusiasts and they conclude by saying while it may still be rough around the edges the program's commitment to an older though slightly inebriated audience is commendable the journalism is more grown up and there's a different dynamic concludes krotowski we are really trying to include good features it's far less wacky than bits so while video game television is unlikely to make a radical departure from its past early evidence suggests that thumb bandits represents a step in the right direction Edge will certainly stay tuned to see how the program evolves over the coming months. Well, they've laid the groundwork there for us, Ash. Apparently, episode three is where this show turns around and this show gets really good. So let's take a look at the episode that was broadcast on the 14th of December, 2001. I started this episode very confident this is episode three, but the more we've talked about this, I'm not 100% confident in calling it episode three. So I think just the 14th of December. Yes. That I can definitely say. Well, let's review an episode of Thumb Bandits. Covering the drugs is a cannabis-fueled burnout. Covering the rock and roll and the rough and tumble is punch em up WWF. And apart from all that, you'll find news, reviews, and in approximately 25 minutes, the end credits. So one thing I do know from other episodes is there's normally a pre-credit sequence. We're missing that on this, um, on this particular VHS recording. We do get them making jokes about drugs and rock and roll, so I'm going to presume the pre-credit sequence included sex. I'm going to presume so as well, because what we essentially get is just the opening credits, the, the theme song for bits, and then it just has Alex's face go, no! And then the jokes they make about uh, Burnout and Smackdown 3. So let's assume that Ian Lee said something along the lines that could be interpreted as, do you fancy a shag? Or words to that effect, something to do with sex... And then we have Burnout. We'll talk about that later. And WWF Smackdown just bring it on the PlayStation 2 representing rock and roll? Uh, well, the, the rock is in the game. 
And you can do a cheeky roll-up. That's exactly it. It all makes sense to me. And a cheeky roll-up could also refer back to cannabis and burnout. As I said at the start of this, I was a, a fan of this show. And when I finished watching this episode, and in fact, I actually watched a handful of episodes while we were trying to work out which episode we were going to record, I do think that this holds up, certainly it holds up better than bits. And I quite like the interactions between Alex and Ian. And the way that this show came about is because Ian had finished up on the 11 o'clock show and he met Alex at a gaming event and he was a fan of Alex and the show Bits. And it just so happened that Alex was a fan of Thumb Candy Ian Lee's Brief History of Video Games, a documentary he'd done for Channel 4. Mario is the video game superstar. A survey in the United States in 1989 found that more American children recognise Mario than Mickey Mouse. Mario is far better known than his creator, Shigeru Miyamoto. That is, except in the world of video games, where this former cartoonist is probably even more popular than Jesus. Miyamoto may be the John Lennon of video games because he brought soul to games. Everyone looks at the next Miyamoto game to find out, you know, what new things the man has invented. I first joined Nintendo because I heard they design equipment for children's playgrounds, and that's what I was interested in doing. He started off at Nintendo doing graphics, doing packaging, things like that, uh, but he also was an obsessed game player. In 1981, Radarscope, Nintendo's latest US release, failed. Nintendo was left with a lot of unsold cabinets on its hands. In desperation, they turned to Miyamoto to create a new game that would work in them. The result was Donkey Kong. I wanted to create a comedy gorilla character, not a frightening one. And so I called the game Donkey Kong, because I heard that in English, donkey means <laughs> foolish. I checked with the people who were in charge of English at Nintendo. They said that it was fine. But when the game was launched in the United States, everyone over there thought it was a very weird name. So they were both fans of each other. The 11 o'clock show had come to an end. Bits had come to an end. But Channel 4 still wanted a video game show. So Alex just asked the producer of Bits, should we do a new show, but with Ian Lee? And he said, yeah. Ian Lee went up to film with them in Glasgow, and that's how we get Thumb Bandits. So we've now got two people here who are both very into their video games, who both like each other and both respect the work that they have done previously, to create a show that, on paper at the very least, as you know, we heard from Ian earlier in the podcast, didn't quite go to plan, but I do think that the interplay between them does feel slightly more genuine than some other shows that you know that we may review later down the line, which is a bit more forced. If I was to do a four-word pitch for Thumb Bandits, it would be Bad Influence After Dark. This is not a Games Master show. This is much more a grown-up bad influence. Yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. And that is one of my favourite things about it, is there's a lot I like about this show. There are some moments that made me wince. Uh, some of them are factual-based moments. Some of them are jokes that are punching down. Am I taking them personally because I feel they are punching down at me or the me of 2001? But Luke, more importantly than, than any of this, it's fucking Christmas again. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
I did think while I was making my notes for this, I was like, oh, cool. Another Christmas episode for us to review. Christmas is coming and the goose is getting fat, but not as fat as the water dough that Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo are hoping to get this festive season. As gamers, we are the target of large corporations who've spent much time and much money trying to figure out how to get us into the shops and then how to get us to part with our cash. So right now, to even things up a bit, we're going to pull back the curtain and reveal the tricks of the ad man's trade. Yep, we are now officially in the land of Xbox. It is a wild, wild time. Even madder than that, the last episode that we did, you know, last week's episode when we were covered bits, the opening feature on that was, what is the future of the Dreamcast? What company was not mentioned amongst those three? It's our poor boy Sega, because there's also a feature later on in this episode that is, basically, the death of the Dreamcast. So not one year later was Bits's, ah, the Dreamcast might be all right, look at this online play it's going to have. It did not ring true, unfortunately. But the reason we're seeing Sony, Nintendo and Microsoft being named here is because it is Christmas. It's that time when they want to line their pockets with all the money of parents or people that are parents that are just adults that have disposable income because you don't need to be a child to play video games anymore. It's a very important time for things like that. And Thumb Bandits goes kind of through the looking glass a bit because they're not going to sit there and say to us, this is what you should be buying from Sony. This is what you should be buying from Nintendo. This is what you should be looking forward to from Microsoft. They're looking at how those companies are selling us their wares, which immediately to me becomes a more interesting take on the standard Christmas feature. Same here. I actually really like this because this is, here are the adverts that you're going to be seeing on TV that are going to make you want to buy these things and why they want to make you buy these things. And crucially, why they'd be made a certain way to appeal to a certain audience of people. This is, again, what you mentioned earlier, the bad influence almost feel to the show which is a look at the industry in itself and also had a lovely bit of nostalgia here because i had a lot of these adverts featured in previous episodes that we've done in series five when the playstation was being launched and when we did our sony playstation launch episode i did have this brief kind of like wince moment when they just talk about looking at the gaming ads of yesteryear and i'm like it's 1995 (laughs) i know this is not retro yet it's six years old at this point you know they're looking here at the the stick the saps with the early days of, of of sony advertising then which they switched over to shapes in 1997 you know all of the complexities of the playstation brand being boiled down to hmm, just shapes but it's stuff that works and we get an interview with a guy he's a creative director for the leak agency a lad named jerry farrell and he basically is there to explain here is why they made these adverts the way that they did. And Jerry is a guy that knows what he's talking about. He worked with the Leith Agency from 1987 through till 2014, only left to start up his own company with his wife, basically doing the same thing, but doing it at a much smaller level meant lower overheads, meant lower costs. He basically helped build that entire agency's reputation. He is the reason why they are still a force to be reckoned with today, because he helped build their profile. And then, probably having become incredibly rich, just went, yeah, I can go and try my own thing now. 
I did find it fascinating going back to some of these early adverts. I remembered the saps. I'd forgotten the stick advert because watching this, my notes went, I'm guessing Ren and Stimpy never saw this because otherwise, holy crap, there'd have been a lawsuit about log. Yeah, it's very much a case of like, I remember when uh, in console wars, they write about the advertising that Sega were looking to do for the the Genesis when competing against Nintendo and getting like a really big, uh, you know, really big marketing spend behind it. And one of the first pictures that they got back was just derivative versions of Saturday Night Live sketches. And that's what I kind of thought back to this because you're right. Like when I saw Stick, I was like, that's almost borderline the same joke from Ren and Stimpy, which in itself was a parody of the Slinky. Something I didn't realise, and it may have actually been while doing research for this bloody podcast, was finding out that the log song was a spoof of the Slinky song. Because he goes downstairs, da-da-da-da. That entire melody was the Slinky advertising campaign. And I grew up watching Log on Ren and Stimpy, not having a single clue that it was a parody. I just thought they were clever. Those boomers just making references to things from their own childhood. It's basically just uh, explains most of Tiny Toons. And also a lot of our podcast. Except we're millennials. We, know we are, that. yes, yes, we're millennials making references to our childhoods instead. Uh, I loved seeing the Shapes campaign because the Shapes campaign, while Sony's advertising and marketing has changed a lot over the years, the Shapes being core branding of the PlayStation has stuck around because they are unique to the PlayStation. Microsoft and Nintendo have the A, B, X, and Y in various configurations, but Square, Triangle, Circle X, that is Sony. PlayStation have always had those face buttons in the same places with the same colors up until the ps5 and i was actually because i only picked up a ps5 pad for the first time recently disappointed to see that the colors are no longer there they are just plain black now boo and boring although weirdly in my head when i'm thinking about where my like i'm doing it now where i'm thinking about where my thumb is i'm thinking oh i'm on the green triangle i'm not i'm on the gray triangle but in my head it's still the green triangle. Our man here, Jerry, though, has quite the statement uh, about the... Uh, <laughs> Yipes. <laughs> about the, uh, the the tagline for the PlayStation, which was, do not underestimate the power of the PlayStation. Uh, in fact, you know what, Jerry? Jerry, I'll, I'll throw this to you. What, what do you make of that as a tagline? Do not underestimate the power of the PlayStation could almost be um, a proclamation from Al-Qaeda. It sounds like some secret terrorist sect that's saying we're much, much more dangerous than you think. And it's incredibly flattering to the, uh, the target audience as well as an incredibly powerful way to describe all the clever stuff that's locked up inside that box. This must have... I mean, when was this recorded? I mean, we know it's five weeks, but also what year are we in, Luke? Oh, I know. I, I was thinking that. When I wrote down Al-Qaeda... I was like, oh, yeah, because, you know, this is probably like 2002 or something. And that's just, oh, no, wait, this was in 2001. Oh, no, wait, they would have recorded this only a couple of months afterwards. Like if we take the five weeks production time to be accurate, two months, two months since 9-11, even if it had been like two months before 9-11 to basically say, oh, it's a, it's a sort of proclamation a terrorist group would say. Wow. And then to say, it's quite flattering to their audience. I'm suddenly seeing the appeal of Stick Luke. So this is where I had my first... I had a real pause when I was kind of listening to what Alex was saying as well, because they show that the double life advertising campaign that they did in, in 98. 
I mean, what she says is... You see, gaming at this time had kind of a crappy image. Games were seen as childish, sad, and tragically unhip. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm not sure I completely agree with that. Like, we were just talking about at the end of Games Master how games were really becoming part of the mainstream. It was almost like a perfect time for the, the next era of the video game boom. And then when Jerry explains... If you're passionate about gaming and you don't want to appear like some kind of nerd or geek to make you feel part of some secret society or a glamorous, dangerous, subversive with loads of power is a great appeal. I was like, oh, that's what Alex meant by they were tragic and unhip because I was into them. The geeks and nerds were into video games and these advertisements were designed to get the mainstream audience in. Now I understand the point that they're both making. Wait, Luke, are you saying that we weren't cool? I don't know if that's fully the case, but because I almost refuse to believe it. It must have been a typo in the script. We were definitely cool. We still are. Yeah. Look at us now, sat recording our podcast 25 years later. Here at 25 past 10 on a Wednesday evening. <laughs> Rock and fucking roll. I've got scotch. You're wearing a Godzilla t-shirt. It's a good time to be alive, my friend. Uh, the Double Life commercial, though, is uh, it is immense. It's a cultural touchstone for advertising because it both showed the breadth of games players because we saw from young kids to older kind of people to parents to athletes to bank robbers maybe to people that could commonly be called basement dwellers. Essentially, it shows that gamers come from all walks of life and whilst not flattering to a lot of them, it was very, very true. The R covering of this feature has come at a, quite a good time as well if you are interested in this side of things and you can get on with his brand of humour. Cad Icarus has literally just posted up a video. His most recent video is about mad video game adverts and he covers a lot of the video game adverts that are featured within this, including Double Life. And the ones that Microsoft are set to do when they launch the Xbox, which was the Life is Too Short, which sees... A, uh, a fetus being shot out of a woman like a cannon and then oh, flying Jesus. through the air and going through their entire life until they land in a grave at the end of it. I had forgotten that advert existed. And the weird thing is, now you just mentioned it, I can see the entire thing in my head. I had also forgotten about it until Caddy brought it up on his video. And I was then reminded of it when, because they talk about, you know, we get to Microsoft in a little bit. We don't see any of Microsoft advertisements, but that advert is not that long after this episode's going to be broadcast. Apparently they decided word of mouth, which is what they said they were going for, was not going to work out for them. But that's the past. We also see a brief snippet of um, Alien Gamer Girl in there somewhere. But we talk about where we are for the now. We have the PlayStation 2 and the Game Boy Advance. So how are they being shilled? Welcome to the third place. Ducks. Sony have the third place, which is a weird tagline for your second console. And this is a weird advert. Luke, in two words, why is this advert weird? Chatting ducks. The words I was going to go for were David and Lynch, because this advert is what happens when Sony commissioned David Lynch to create a commercial for the PlayStation 2. They give him a bunch of money and creative freedom, and the result is a one-minute black-and-white trailer which was shown in theatres in over 100 countries except the United States, because, Luke, 
ducks too weird for america if it's not wearing a sailor's uniform they don't want to know about ducks i did my notes here were just where the third place bracket sony caesar duck welcome us to the third place even like because I, I didn't know that this was done by uh, uh, Derek Lynch, um, uh, formerly of Games Master, of course. That when I, I wrote down, I was like, "This feels very David Lynch." And then you know, you look it up, and you're like, "Oh, it's because it is." And Jerry basically says that like this is PlayStation selecting their target audience using its content. So it is putting out content and that content is getting a target audience rather than trying to make content for a target audience. The content itself is finding the audience because younger viewers aren't going to watch that advert and get it. They're not going to want to buy a PlayStation because of that, but that's not who Sony are after. They're just going to be terrified by ducks. Exactly. They are, Sony instead of just are looking for the people who get it. And I, th- I think that is very, very interesting. Similarly then when he's talking about the Game Boy Advance uh advertising campaign the firing range because he says that you know the the target audience for nintendo a bizarre thing to say it's usually 18 years old i'm not sure that's the case but he points out that the kid in this one is in his early 20s so this is an advertisement that is actually trying to appeal to kids older than 18 to get themselves a game boy advance for christmas and also go to firing ranges and throw radishes at things Bit of a weird flex. It's kind of not quite as edgy as David Lynch, because really, what else is as edgy as David Lynch other than David Lynch? But it's also not the kind of slapstick Rick Mail type adverts or going back to the 90s. It's Nintendo trying to be grown up while also going, look, Mario's throwing radishes. Isn't that cute? But what of the future? Well, you haven't escaped the clutches of the ad men yet. The conveyor belt of consumerism just keeps on rolling. Microsoft's first ploy is word of mouth. Yeah, they want to be the talk of the gaming town. Initially, we want to get make sure that the hardcore gamers are really convinced about the Xbox. And then that word of mouth engine will continue on. And if they've already sort of embraced the brand, then they'll join the party. We cut across to our our Microsoft representative here, which is Richard Tavisham, who is the Xbox UK games journalist. Sorry, marketing manager. Not a journalist, I'm a marketing manager. And he says that rather than use clever advertisements, uh, they are going to get... Basically, they are just going to get hardcore gamers to play it, and those hardcore gamers will convince their hardcore gamers, who will convince their hardcore gamers, and so on and so on, and you'll all just join the party eventually. Didn't work. But Halo did when it came out. That that was it. It was Word of mouth works when you've got something other than a Black Breeze block to market. I remember seeing the Xbox for the first time, not long after it launched, and seeing the cool blobby startup logo and the kind of imposing nature of the box because, you know, it's big as some VCRs at that point and the big old controller before they went, now let's make a smaller one. And I thought, well, that looks cool, but I can't tell you anything about the games I saw in that early period. Not until Halo came along and also things like Fable. I mean, when we get later on in this episode, when we talk about some of the Xbox launch titles, they're not, they're not start, they're not like stirring ones. They're not maybe like, ah, that's why I need to go and pick up an Xbox. But we'll get onto that a bit later on in the episode. Because never mind that shit, here comes wrestling. I know absolutely sod all about American wrestling. Proper wrestling with real wrestlers like Big Daddy and Kendo Nagasaki. Well, that's different. I think we all deep down inside respect a big fat bastard in a leotard beating the crap out of another fat man. It's primal, instinctive, like the need to sniff a girl's shoes when she leaves the room. 
but the designers haven't bothered to make a wrestling game based on our pie-guzzling Saturday afternoon heroes. Instead, they've gone for the slightly more lucrative world of WWF. So Ian knows sod all about American wrestling, which is a real shame, Luke, because I was hoping we'd learn something here. Yeah, but we did get a nice reference to former Games Master contestant Kendo Nagasaki. Our man Ken. And does the usual thing that happens whenever someone on British telly has to talk about wrestling. They all, I was amazed he didn't say giant haystacks. He said the other one, he said Big Daddy. Uh, and I was actually thrilled he went with Kendo as opposed to giant haystacks. But this is what always happens. We have got a very big wrestling event coming to the UK in August. And I would wager when some of those wrestlers do appear on. Uh, daytime TV shows to promote the fact that they're going to be doing a show, there will be references to Giant Haystacks and Big Daddy because this is what we always do as a culture. I'm going to assume it's the one show because it's always the one show. I had a friend that was a, was a wrestler who was on the one show, got complaints to points of view because they made what was seen to be a gang sign. <laughs> which was just, It was so amazing. They got good press and they just made that sign and people wrote in and complained. It was so fucking funny. I, I do like that the, the next couple of lines because they're kind of they're playing into what British wrestling was the concept of we all respect a big fat bastard in a leotard beating up another fat man I mean look I've always respected that I'm terrified not to but it's this next line which had me holding my head but also laughing it's primal instinctive like the urge to sniff a girl's shoe when they leave the room <laughs> I mean, I like the fact that he described, uh, you know, our British wrestlers as the pie-guzzling Saturday afternoon heroes. Accurate. Again, 100% accurate. But instead of opting to make a game about them, THQ have instead opted to make a game about the WWF, which is the, that American side of wrestling. That fake side of wrestling. And in a very, that has not aged well line here, he says, WWF Smackdown features some of the biggest names from this pretend sport. Now, I only know they're famous because I asked a 12 year old and he assures me that The Rock is wicked. That is accurate. And not knowing that only a handful of years from now, he will be the biggest actor on the planet. I mean, I hope that 12-year-old put money on it as soon as they were old enough. Hey, I did. When I was in a fan in 2000, we were all saying, that's our guy right there, that rocket. Once he goes into Hollywood, I went to go see Walking Tall on the day it opened because I knew I had to go and support my guy. You went to see The Scorpion King? Sure did. Absolutely, I did. I went to see The Scorpion I went to go see The Mummy 2 specifically so I could see the PS2 graphic rock that appears at the end of it. Now, let's be fair. The PS2 graphics on this game look better than that CGI Scorpion. That is fair. Because this is Smackdown Just Bring It. This is our first 32-bit and above wrestling game on the podcast because we had our WWF Super Nintendos and then we skipped the PS1 era of wrestling games pretty much completely. Yeah, we only got WrestleMania the Arcade game featured in the review section of Series 5. And we got a challenge on it as well with the Gladiators. But we didn't get uh, anything sort of outside of that. We didn't get anything on SmackDown, the SmackDown games, WWF Attitude, any of the WCW games or anything like that. Because we basically just slightly, you know, the Games Master goes off the air early 98. And that is just before the real rise of the Attitude Era kicks in and wrestling becomes this very big mainstream thing. Mainstream to, a, you know, to, to the, the degree that wrestling can be mainstream. Mainstream for Sky owners. 
I did get this game on day of release because I had my PlayStation 2 at this point in time uh, and I was very excited to play the next Smackdown game because I really liked Smackdown and I loved Smackdown 2, know your role, and I was super excited for Smackdown 3. But I do remember being very, very let down by Smackdown 3. Maybe I didn't get this day of release thinking about it. I'm just I'm trying to replay this, you know, the, my timeline in my head. I think I get my PlayStation 2 for my birthday this year. So probably, you know, the day that this airs is the day that I get my PS2. And I think I had this at Christmas this year. And because I, I remember playing it at my nan's house. So I definitely had it around this period of time, whether I got it day of release or whether I bought it with some pocket money or whatever have you between now and Christmas. But I do remember being distinctly disappointed by SmackDown 3, Just Bring It, because it's the story mode in it is three or four matches, I think. Like you can, you basically choose the title that you want to go for. And rather than it be like No Mercy on the N64, where you've got like lots of branching storyline options, you just run around backstage, find some guys have a match you win that match you then run to find more guys have a match and then eventually you face the champion and win the belt that you go after and that's it and there isn't a whole hell of a lot more to it outside of the fact that fred durst of limp Bizkit is an unlockable character uh, by beating the battle royal mode with undertaker and it's also it was it was quite criticized when it came out because it was hugely out of date by the time the game actually came out because it was finalized just before uh, and the, you know I appreciate anyone listening to this who isn't a wrestling fan will have no real kind of appreciation for what I'm about to say here or any understanding of what I'm about to say here they'd bought a competitor a competitor company and signed a lot of their wrestlers but none of those wrestlers are featured within this game because the game had been finalized before they'd all made it onto TV so the game has got this woefully out-of-date roster by the time it's actually hitting shelves here in late 01. Although it is the only WWF game to feature, uh, I mean, a, a legitimate wrestling legend, Jerry Lynn, who was one of the pillars upon which the renegade company ECW was built. His feud with Rob Van Dam literally lasted years. This is the first SmackDown game, first WWF game on the PlayStation 2, but it is also the last WWF game to feature on the PlayStation 2 because the Pandas win and WWF becomes WWE. To the point where when this went to the kind of the platinum label or whatever Sony call it, it was rebranded on the box at least as WWE SmackDown Just Bring It, although all the in-game stuff remained the same. They weren't going to spend that amount of money on it. No, the pandas aren't going to check what's actually on the on the disc. They just want to make sure what's on the front cover. I thought this was the first SmackDown game I had for the PS2, and I was wrong because I looked into it more and I realised I skipped Just Bring It. I leapt directly to Shut Your Mouth. Which I... is great. Great story mode in it as well, Like a, especially if you choose a creator wrestler or a low-tier superstar. Amazing amazing uh, story mode in it. So I, I realised that I actually, I think I got my PS2 after you did. Hmm. I, um, I I would have got mine at some point uh, after I'd kind of picked myself up and dusted myself back down, became full-time employed again. A PS2, I would have got Smackdown, Shut Your Mouth. And I want to say I would have got a GTA game as well. Nice. Because, yeah, I, Shut Your Mouth is really good. Here Comes the Pain, which is the, the next game on the first uh, uh, wrestling game to not be named after a, rocks, uh, ca- a rock catchphrase. Here Comes the Pain is, I think, arguably the 
best of the SmackDown games of that PS2 era. That's a superb game. But I can already hear some of our listeners glazing over, so we should probably continue with the actual article. You get a choice of playing options, including the story section, where you have to make it in the crazy world that is WWF. And this adds a little to the game, but really, all you want is to get sweaty and pummel one or two men in the ring. So forget the story and just head to the tournament. Now, I've been singing its praises so far, and it has loads of features with different kinds of fights and teams, and this will make a million teenagers on council estates cream themselves. But it isn't flawless. The controls are terrible, really fiddly and complicated. Now, I'm a busy man. I do not have two hours to spend working out how to make an American put another American into a half Nelson. I want to be able to do it instantly. Because Ian goes through some of the different modes that are in the game. We get some gameplay footage while this is going on. We see who I can recognise as William Regal fighting the big show. A referee is in the room with them. He appears to be shivering or glitching. I mean, Luke, it's a good job that WWF or rather WWE games nowadays don't have glitches like that. That's all I can say. We'd never see anything like that. Absolutely not. Not before it's patched out anyway. But Lee is not interested in all the various season modes or various options that you can get. He just wants to pummel men in the ring. Diamondisms are alive (laughs) and well in 2001. And this is the interesting thing, particularly with the the benefit of hindsight and that uh, interview that we read out earlier where he talks about how the fact he did think that this game was rubbish but had to give it a favorable review almost as a compromise because of the bad uh mouthing he gave to max Payne. this is a bit of a compromise review because what he is saying here is that i don't think it's very good it isn't flawless the controls are terrible i'm a busy man i don't have two hours to work out how to get a man into a half nelson although i think that is unfair against the game because it's arcade you press like left and circle and you do a move. I don't think it's it's not hugely complicated. It's less complicated than Street Fighter. You don't have to remember down, forward, down, forward, punch, kick, ultras, all that jazz. But the point that he makes is, its target audience are going to like this. This game is going to make teenagers on council estates cream themselves. If you're a fan of the WWF, if you're one of those mysterious weirdos that like the WWF, you will also love this. That's the compromise part of this. I don't like it, but if you like wrestling and you like wrestling games, then you will like it. See, that is a fine compromise. The bit that I objected to, and I think this is aged like sour milk in the sun, is the, it's enough to make millions of teenagers on council estates cream themselves. Just that whole millions of teenagers cream themselves, whatever. You put council estates in there, you make it a classist statement. Someone looking down on people because they live on a council estate, because they like wrestling. It actually, there's a lot in this episode I really liked, but that comment made me pretty angry because I didn't live on a council estate, but my nan did. And that's where I spent a lot of my time as a kid. And that's where I first discovered wrestling with my granddad. And so I, I just thought, man, that, that even now, that makes me angry. And I get it was just part of the tone of the show, but also it's unnecessary. It, it's the audience that you're trying to appeal to with, with this sort of, you know, airing 10 to midnight on it. Yeah, again, like what we talked about with bits, that coming home from the pub, a kebab in hand, that's the, the your target audience is trying to make yourselves, we're the cool people that are watching this show. But I, I, I totally get what you mean, because I also did not grow up in a council estate, but all my family did. So I, I, and they actually weren't the wrestling fans I was. So 
it, it's, it's a very unfair statement to make, but again, it's almost one of those style of the time statements to make. If, uh, it's weird to say that it's a style of the time thing. It's almost like that mighty number nine uh, advertising campaign, where it's like it'll make you cry like an anime fan on prom night. Yeah. Like it, it, sometimes things don't really change that much. And he does get one last dig in at wrestling fans again when he does say, the game's not made for people like me. It's it's for the it's for the wrestling fans, and it's those last two lines. Bless them. Bless. And I'm just them. like, oh mate, I like Ian Lee. I like a lot of this episode. I I don't like that. That that those lines I put up there with some of Dave Perry, some of the peak Dave Perry stuff we got. And I'm not saying it because I'm a wrestling fan. I am saying it because I'm from a family that grew up on a council estate the council house my nan lived in until she died i did get a slight chuckle out of uh smacking around the face the top oh yeah the smack talk to the game which he wasn't playing by the way he was no. just watching cpu versus cpu something i can't say isn't enjoyable because i'm doing it for at least 50 percent of the matches i'm streaming on twitch right now there was a lot of really funny lines in there it just felt unnecessarily mean welcome to the thumb bandits news desk where we bring you news from the global gaming village here's the village idiot I'm fully armed, got my Pokeballs ready to go In full of that tag, I'm picking, picking, picking you Yes, you can dance, yeah. for double trouble We'll take a bow to the notorious couple They're called 50 Point Grind And the track is gotta catch them all Metal American thrash meets crap Japanese animation in a healthy example of how not to reach a target audience. Anyone over nine who does not see through this is probably in the band. Not really limp biscuit, more just limp. Alex, do you see my pocket monster? Now, Ash, I know that you were just uh, talking very poetically there about how you took offence to some of Ian Lee's comments about wrestling fans. Uh, I took a lot of offence to them calling this new metal because fuck you very much. This is not new metal. Specifically, they said new metal American thrash, and it's like this is a group from London. <laughs> it's, yeah, this it's amazing actually how much of this is 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 not on point not on 50 point either oh no, absolutely it's not limp biscuit it's just limp and i did laugh at the line anyone over nine who doesn't see through this is probably just in the band but again continuing the whole diamondisms are not dead ian makes a pocket monster joke alex looks at his crotch in disappointment so 50 point grind were a band i'm doing bucky o'hare is this is their only single that didn't stop them doing a lot of interviews and stuff and i think it's interesting this song was actually a freebie uh it came as a freebie as a cd-rom and as a single that you could then buy free with the daily express which makes me think so much of this as a manufactured thing it's a manufactured uh partnership between some uh, record label and nintendo because this is an officially licensed nintendo song and then they put it out free with the Daily Express. They were doing interviews with Box and in, you know, sort of magazines and things like that, talking about how they're going to be doing. I, I, I watched this Box interview that they did, and it's filmed down at a skate park. Hey, this is DJ Locust, James, Matt, Dusty, Harry, and we're 50 Point Grind! 
Musical influences would be Dave Matthews Band, Soundgarden, Beastie Boys, New Crazy Town albums, Wickles, Grandmaster Flash, DJ Cash Money, obviously a bit of Nirvana, quite like a Ugly Kid Joe, The Limp Biscuit sound is, is pretty similar to ours, so I love what they're doing. I'm fully armed, got my Pokeballs ready to go. In full effect, tag a pick a pick a Pikachu. My favourite Pokemon is a guy called Farfetch'd for Alligator. It's got a sprig of little green onions. I have to say Pikachu, though. Jigglypuff, Entei, and he's basically a huge wolf. He just sings everyone to sleep. And they're talking about recording an album and their big plans that they have. And clearly one of the questions is, where would you like to play? And they have got this, you know, big sky thinking of what they would like to do. One of them says, oh, we'd love to play festivals. One of them says, oh, we'd love to sell out Wembley. One of them says, oh, we'd love to sell out Madison Square Garden. I mean, dream big, lads. But your single was number 57 on the UK singles charts. You couldn't even crack the top 50. Although, after they split up, Rooster was formed from some of the remnants. Nick Atkinson, the vocalist of 50 Point Grind, went on to be the lead singer of Rooster. And Rooster, whilst their star burned oh so briefly, two albums, basically over a handful of years, they did crack the top 50. In fact, they cracked the top 10. They had a couple of singles that hit in. I think their debut single was like number seven and the second single was number five. And I am 99% certain I owned at least one of Rooster's albums. So 50 Point Grind, couldn't tell you Jack all about. But Rooster, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I seem to remember having Rooster, their self-titled album, probably. And even then, like after they split up, Nick is still making music to this day. I, in fact, actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure in the, the box interview that I did, and I only picked this up because it was left as a comment on that YouTube video, he's not called Nick in this band. I think he's called Matt or something. Again, it features more of that, makes me think this is very, very much a manufactured thing. The CD-ROM that this came with also had lots of stuff for Pokemon. You know, it had adverts for Pokemon Stadium 2 and the third Pokemon movie and stuff. But... I did find a review of the song written by a Pokemon fan site from uh, November 2001. Uh, they write, What may seem like commercial suicide could actually be a good thing. In my opinion, it's a class song. Much better than the mediocre Nintendo Kids WB song such as Together Forever, this song has an edge of coolness featuring a band going as mad as you can be with expensive equipment oh and there's skateboarding too i think that's all i can write about this pretty damn good song let's just pray that other bands will follow suit namely less than jake we want a rewritten version of liquor store as pokemart maybe some 41 could do one too overall bearing in mind i am a pop punk scar fan i'd rate this song 9 out of 10 or 90 percent or 4 out of 5 it's Pokemon.net's seal of approval. Can we rewind a second? Pock Punk Scar. Yeah, so, so it's rock slash punk slash scar. Oh, I thought you said Pock <laughs> slash punk slash scar. I'm like, oh, he shortened Pokemon to just Pock because I'm thinking Pock Punk Scar sounds like a hell of a genre mashup for a Pokemon based kind of like tribute band. Ah, uh, I thought this song founded fine. I mean, they can clearly play their instruments. Also, Luke, they skateboard. They've got to be cool. Yeah, they were. I mean, the, the thing on box has got a lot, doing a lot of skateboarding. Uh, I've had this song stuck in my head all day long. It's catchy. And neither of us are nine, nor in the band that we remember. But I love how that gets 
quite a bit of time and mostly being dunked on. And yet the next bit of news, which is fairly big, gets one line. And staying Japanese, game-making legends SNK have finally bowed out after 20 years of video gaming. The company responsible for the Neo Geo Pocket have finally lost the uphill struggle against the Game Boy. Oh, R.I.P. SNK. Yeah, sorry, SNK. You couldn't beat Game Boy and your goose is cooked. It's interesting as well. Like They, they kind of look at them as just they couldn't compete with Game Boy. Uh, you know, like they were the people behind the Neo Geo Pocket as opposed to, you know, Everything the Neo else. The, the, the Geo. <laughs> like the, the really cool, awesome console, the Neo Geo. Now, to say they were gone, much like later on with the Dreamcast, is not entirely accurate because... They did file for bankruptcy. A number of core developers left. They moved on to Capcom, for example. But fairly soon after filing for bankruptcy, uh, assets were bought out by the Playmore Corporation. And in fact, realistically, SNK never actually stopped. They went through periods of hibernation. I mean, they're still going today, although with questionable owners. Yeah, this news item's got a little bit of like that guy that's in Independence Day who uh, tells the president... That's not entirely accurate because you're right, like they had filed a bankruptcy in October of 01, but by the end of October 01, Playmore had bought all of their intellectual properties and started to rehire some of those SNK employees. So it's not really the end of SNK as, as Thumb Bandits might have you believe here. And even going further forward, they didn't fully give up on the Neo Geo console until 2004. Like Samurai Showdown 5, I think the special version or whatever, that was the last Neo Geo game. I mean, I guess they're basing it off of what information they've got coming through at the time. And hey, the company filed for bankruptcy. But as has proven to happen with a lot of different video game companies, including Atari, who are just a very short space of time from one of their resurrections, like uh, just at the beginning of 2002, bankruptcy doesn't mean the end of the line because all it requires is for them to wear a different hat, get some different finances, have their assets and branding bought, and boom, it continues onwards. And this is still early days internet as well, so you are only going by what you have been told. So if you've been told that SNK is going under, that's what you're going by because you've only got access to a certain amount of information. Elsewhere, new British developers Prey Digital are set to unveil their brand new title, Stung. Procedures. The premise of the game is a tongue-in-cheek take in the Half-Life plot with a war raging between modified insects with micro-machine-style obstacles including kettles and flypaper traps it looks like it's going to be a real holler. So this is a game that does not come out. Absolutely. Uh, this is another one I fell down a rabbit hole on because I was like, well, I'm fairly certain this game didn't come out. Yep, quick Google confirms. There's no sign of it. It is not helped by the fact that the developer is called Prey Digital Studios. And as you may be aware, there's a fairly big game called Prey, which makes searching for it very difficult. But I couldn't even find any information on them in Company's house. It's also not helped by the fact that the game is said to be called Stung, but there was a game that had come out in 2001 called The Sting. So it was often just also correcting you to mean, did you mean this game instead? And I think actually, oh, I might come out in 2001 or 2002, either one of the two, but it, it made searching for this. Like I checked Unseen 64 and their article on it is basically, if you have anything, please do let us know. But this had a real stench of, this game's never coming out because what we get is essentially just a few clip art images of concepts for an actual game rather than game footage. 
actual screenshots of the game are out there and I was, via the Wayback Machine, able to find the studio's website from around this time, which says, based in the idyllic heart of the Norfolk countryside, Prey Digital Studios are a dynamic new independent game development team with a wealth of original ideas, experience and talent. After several years working within the games industry, all of the team members have achieved a high level of skill and expertise in their relevant fields, and between them, they have several published titles to their credit on a number of different platforms. No idea what any of those are, because the images are broken in the way back machine. At present, the team consists of one programmer and four artists. So that explains why there's a lot of concept art being shown here and only one programmer that's probably tearing his hair out. Having all worked together on a number of different projects, the team work very closely with each other and form a strong unit with no hierarchy structure and everybody has their say in any decisions which need to be made. Ooh, I can see why this fell apart. As the workload requires it, we will of course look at expanding the team to meet our needs. And in fact, on the website, there was a little link going, we need someone, (laughs) we have vacancies. But this was going to be their first game. And as far as I can tell, the developer and the artist, while not named, you know, there's no indication they went on to do anything else in the game industry. But it looks like they were developing this on a 3D game engine that they were building in-house. So this was quite a kind of an ambitious project, especially for a team of four that did not have a publisher at all. So this game was going to run out of money fairly quickly. And it did. And it's a shame because going by what they said the concept of the game was going to be, A Bug's Life Meets Half-Life is not the worst concept in the world for a 3D game. Now in the run-up to Christmas, burnout publishers acclaim are blatantly courting controversy with their stance on drug driving. Yes, research they claim to have carried out indicates that playing their game whilst stoned improves your performance. Claims say that being moderately high can improve your lap times, race tactics, and racing line. But they are warning everyone that taking a hit within the game will slow you down. A game that did come out, though, and a game that I absolutely loved, is Burnout. I do not remember this controversy, but this is a claim. Who, for other Burnout games, did the thing where they were offering to pay speeding tickets that people received. Uh, there was the whole thing with Turok, where people changed their names via Depol for cash prizes or something similar. So what a claim would do for Column Inches, saying that people should play this game stoned, would not surprise me. I can definitely say that playing Burnout Stoned did not improve my lab times. I just pulled the car over and listened to the music. I was a huge fan of this series three is my favorite of the lot i know a lot of people like burnout paradise is their one and the reason is that the remaster as well but burnout three was my game of this franchise we used to sink hours upon hours into playing that game thought the racing on it was awesome the whole crash mode thing was so much fun like that's a great little party game atmosphere but yeah we did a lot a lot of hours on burnouts Sometimes stoned and sometimes not as well. All avid viewers will know that three empty seats and three expectant screens means it's kangaroo court judge and jury time. This week's gun-toting gamers are Paul, Scott and Rowan. This week we're looking at the best new shoot 'em up Facing the Firing Squad or Time Crisis 2, Headhunter and Ghost Recon. So I guess we would say this is our our other review section of the show because we have Ian's review and we have Alex's review later. This is the Kangaroo Court review. 
where they have three punters, all with Scottish accents because of where they're filming, and they give them three games that are within a similar genre to each other and get them to decide which of these three games is the best one to buy. And the three games that we have here as of within the shooter genre are Headhunter, Time Crisis 2, and Ghost Recon. This takes me back to old school Games Master reviews where we did have, oh, it's a platformer special, oh, it's a sports special. And so just going, well, these three games are all shooting games, and I'm just like, cool, I'm on board with this. But again, like Bad Influence, it's punters off the street as opposed to games journalists. Yeah, and our three punters are Paul, Scott, and Rowan, and up first, they're looking at Headhunter for the Dreamcast. Out for the Dreamcast in November, Headhunter. In the not-so-distant future, committing a crime means that you're indebted to the state. If you don't have the cash, you're paying a body parts, mate. This could only come from the sick and twisted mind of an X-Files creator. Hey, it did. But did our jury think that it was X-rated or X-directory? Keep your eyes open. That headhunter could show up and the boss wants him bad. Is it eye candy or an eyesore? Very much eye candy. It's a gorgeous looking game. Best part of the game for me is the story, the plot itself. Very filmic, very cinematic. Um, you get very involved in it. Anything let it down? Yeah, for me it was too much of a mix of styles, too much of a mix of genres of game. It compares to Metal Gear Solid, it has aspects of Driver, even things like Silent Hill and Tomb Raider in there as well. But then it's disturbed by the fact that you're changing your style straight away almost. Talk to me, Paul. Who is going to like this game? If you're an RPG fan, a shooter fan, then it's going to suit your fancy because it's got both in there. And finally, is it worth the price? For £30, it's great value. This was a game inspired by action movies, inspired particularly by the sci-fi films of one Paul Verhoeven. Cannot believe he has come up yet again in our podcast run here. Like, it, he's become almost the patron saint of this show. Like, we had him... Move and- over, Dominic. Your time is done. Now it's Paul well, Verhoeven's chance. It was all of the stuff about Starship Troopers at the end of Games Master. Then we had Hollow Man. And here we are one week later. It's more chat about Mr. Verhoeven's work. Is that what comes after we're done? Is that what happens at the end? We just slowly go through all of Paul Verhoeven's works. I mean, that would be another limited time podcast. But... This is a kind of a multi-genre game. You're following the protagonist, Jack Wade. It made good use of the analog triggers on the Dreamcast control pad to kind of control acceleration and braking in the racing system, much like a lot of traditional racing games would. It has a sequel come out about a year and change later called Headhunter Redemption. That didn't get released on the Dreamcast. That just went straight to PS2 and Xbox. And the Dreamcast version was pretty well received. Eurogamer liked it. And it was described as a masterpiece of modern video game development. It's, I, I think the, the whole multi-genre thing that it goes for kind of works in its favour and works against it. Like, you know, it's it's cool because it, it shows off a broad range of, of different play styles. But when you look at the, the punters here and when they're giving their thoughts on it, like Paul even thinks that there's actually too many genre of games within this one game and he actually just liked it when it was just the shooting aspect of it then like the driving sections you know and then you got rowan comparing it to metal gear solid as well as driver as well as silent hill scott even saying there's rpg elements to this for 30 quid it's good value actually for 30 quid that, that is very good value but this is a game that i 
didn't play, but I knew exactly what the box art looked like. Mm, so when I, when I was working at GameStation, this is just one of those ones in our very small Dreamcast section that we still had. I remember seeing... All, there was always seemed to be a copy of Head of Headhunter around. Now, something that is mentioned in this review, in the introduction, and something that is mentioned elsewhere on the internet, is the involvement of an X-Files writer. And this piqued my interest. We talked about the X-Files before, so I went and looked, and the writers listed as one Philip Lawrence. And uh, Luke, do you know what his connection to the X-Files is? What's that? Nothing, as far as I can tell. I don't. Did, did he just write an issue of the X-Files comic? Is that what it is? Or, again, it's just that misinformation that you have been told when you get given the game or you hear third hand from someone else insane that we had this at the end of series seven with that yoshi story review where they were like this is a shigeru miyamoto title when it isn't and this is just the you hear these things you take it as read and in a very early days internet not everything is being fact-checked as much as you and I are doing here, where we've got almost unlimited resources to work from. Sometimes just mistakes were made and things were said, and this is why it's hard to find out what episode of Thumb Bandits is actually being shown to you on YouTube. But the actual X-Files connection now appears on multiple sites coming up to the present day. So I reckon it was put in a press release somewhere. Like it, it must. I think I don't think that every website that is talking about this X Files connection sourced it from Thumb Bandits. I think some press agent somewhere went, uh, "What else have you written?" And maybe the guy went, "I wrote a letter to X Files magazine saying I fancied Dana Scully," and they're like, "Cool, wrote for the X Files." There we go. Or it could be a case of, and and this is also a, a you know a possibility. It was her, it was heard elsewhere, said here written elsewhere because they'd also heard it here and then it just moves on and on and on and on in the same way that for the longest time it was thought that there were two endings to king kong versus godzilla one for the american audience one for the japanese audience in the american audience version king kong wins the japanese version godzilla wins the reason why that was misconceptual uh, mis uh, uh, misinformation for years on end is because it was a question in trivial pursuit and that then became law, and it was then written about, and it was then referenced in books. But the Trivial Pursuit question was wrong in the first place. There was only ever one ending to that movie, and King Kong wins. He was the biggest star. It's just sometimes how these things happen, because if that one person has found out that so he wrote for the X-Files, and that one person tells someone else who's written that it was working on the X-Files, it's just how it spreads. And before you know it, people are saying, oh yeah, he wrote for the X-Files, until you actually dig around and be like, no, he didn't. He wrote for EastEnders. Awesome. It is really nice to get a chance to be that guy for once, to go, well, actually. But moving on to our next game, here is a brand new game called Time Crisis 2 that definitely wasn't released in the original timeline before we'd finished Games Master. How does this compare to the first one? Is this as good as better? Not as good? Uh, well, pretty much the same, but I mean, it's been updated for the PS2, so it's nicer graphics, it's mm. going a bit faster. What's the story like? I don't really care. The story in Time Crisis is never the most important part. You pick it up to shoot for a while, you get the blood rush to put it down. Now, what would you say is the worst part of this game? Um, the fact that it does become very repetitive very quickly. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the worst part of this game? Bloody hell, this, this brought back some memories for me. Just like the, the action, action, whenever you do things. Damn, like, I could hear the arcades playing this game. I mean, Time Crisis 2 was a 1997 game. And here we are, 2001, and it's like, oh, well, the PS2 can run this. The PS1 couldn't, but the PS2 can. So 
it, it's fascinating to see it here because I'm fairly certain we talked about Time Crisis 2 in the original timeline. I must have had it as a news item. Or just while talking about the original Time Crisis and the PlayStation port of it. I, I know I definitely talked about it a lot because this was down in my... After my local arcade stopped being a Sega world and started getting other arcade machines here, Time Crisis was a, was a very popular one. This is actually my favourite review on the show for a number of reasons. One is Time Crisis 2 is excellent. Uh, two is... Ian asking what someone thinks of the game while deliberately blocking the view of the screen was inordinately funny, especially because the guy was really, really trying to play around him. I uh, also enjoyed uh, Ian asking the question, like, you know, um, what's the gameplay like? And uh, Paul replies, it does come a bit repetitive. And so Ian says, cool. So what's the gameplay like? A repetitive question. Very good. Very entertaining. And Rowan being asked, what's the story like? And the response is, don't care. Pick up, shoot, bloodlust, put it down. (laughs) Last and perhaps least is Ghost Recon. Now, author Tom Clancy's name may not instantly conjure up images of battle-worn hard men. But if you're a fan of the Rainbow Six series, then you already associate this guy with facial scars and extreme forms of heavy weaponry. Equipped with the latest battlefield technology and trained in the latest techniques of covert warfare, they strike swiftly, silently, invisibly. They call themselves the Ghosts. Ghost Recon, where does it fall in the great genre scheme of things? Oh, bit of a tricky one that. Um, It's a shooter, but it's quite tactical as well, so it takes a wee bit of time to get into. Does it bring out the soldier in you, cowboy? I'm afraid my fatigues are still in the cupboard. Now, how difficult was Ghost Recon to pick up and play for a console gamer like yourself? Very difficult, actually. It's very thorough, very exacting. It's a strategy game, but it's a lot you have to learn in the first place anyway, but it seemed like I was spending a long time just training. So are you ready to drag your fatigues on, then? Yeah, I've got the treasures on, at least. Just let me run and find my coat. Now then, Scott, you're a bit of a PC strategy boy. How does it compare to other strategy titles? It's great. It's fantastic. I loved it. If you like the likes of uh, Project IGI, uh, Rogue Spear, Rainbow Six, then this game's for you. What I liked about it from the start was the way that you controlled your squad. They had a bit of an AI. They had uh, the you what they were doing, but you could control them. You could give them suggestions and orders. You're a bit of a control freak then. Well, yeah, at home, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I don't want to know about that. Our third title here, Ghost Recon, kind of splits our our panel somewhat here because Paul is like it's a shooter, but it's also a bit more tactical. You got to spend a bit more time doing things. Rowan's just like eh, it's a bit difficult if you're a console gamer. It's more for a PC thing. But Scott's there like I fucking love this. I'm having a great time playing this game. I love that it's tactical. I love that it takes you hours to do things. I love that it's got this AI stuff in there. I think like when it comes to them making their final choice. And they say it's at two to one. You can bet your bottom dollar that it was Scott saying that Ghost Recon is the best of the three. Yeah, I mean, the the one that gets picked, Headhunter, genuinely shocked me. I thought Time Crisis 2 was going to be the one to take it. I I, was, I thought Headhunter was actually a shoe-in to win because they were talking about how they thought Time Crisis was too repetitive. No, that's fair. But the thing that shocked me the most about the Ghost Recon, I mean, Tom Clancy is a name that is now as much associated with video games as anything else is the intro of going, Tom Clancy's name may not immediately bring up images of battle-worn hard men. What? It's the only thing it brings up. I mean, like, that's even, like, go back, Hunt for Red October on a submarine has the most battle-worn hard man Scottish Russian submarine captain (laughs) in the world. The guy has made a career writing about battle-worn hard men. It is weird copy 
And like, there's some factual inaccuracies in this episode. I mean, it's something that the show was criticised for in its first two episodes as well. And I'm not going to throw too many stones on that because we've made factual inaccuracies ourselves. In fact, I'm fairly certain that the moment this episode drops, someone will go, that was actually episode four or actually this was episode two or just something that get that blows my entire theory about this being episode three out of the water. But literally Tom Clancy had written over a dozen books at this point, multiple film adaptations with well-known grizzled of the time hard men, Sean Connery, uh, Harrison Ford, you know, those names that you're going to associate with being grizzled and hardish men. It just is such a weird line. Yeah. And it, 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 it's, it, yeah, I guess it's not within their wheelhouse. Yeah, it is a very good game. It got a number of sequels and expansion packs and just continued that Tom Clancy legacy. Interestingly, when the Russian-Georgian War began, a number of commentators went, oh, that's quite similar to the plot to Ghost Recon. This is, again, much like Headhunter, one that I saw a lot of when I was working at GameStation in that second-hand section of the PS2. Always, there's always some form of Tom Clancy game, but Ghost Recon is the one I remember seeing a lot of. That and it, its various sequels. It's not really my sort of game. I don't mind like kind of like realistic war games. I don't mind historical Elseworlds, alternate futures, that kind of, you know, present day but different timeline shooter games. But tactical squad control, I can barely control my own player. Yeah, it's, it's not my cup of tea. Of those three, I probably would have picked Headhunter as well. Time Crisis, I love. I love Time Crisis too. As I've, I've, I've sung its praises a lot, but I, I think I kind of agree with what they say that it's a lot like the first game, and it's probably going to get a bit repetitive after a while. These Headhunters got a bit of variety to it, and an interesting story that you might actually get involved with. So, with immaculately bad taste, it would appear our gamers enjoyed all three games this evening. But there's only one that can blast their head off with votes of two to one. It's Headhunter. Nice one, guys. Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> Working all night again, Kelly. We must discuss your salary. Smell off ice, as clear as your conscience. The most seductive digital camera is now even more desirable. Directly connect the Canon Digital Ixus V to the CP10 card photo printer for quality photo prints. No PC required. Lovable, unpredictable, programmable. It's The Sims. Hey there, sport. What's all the racket? It's a llama, Daddy. A South American beast of burden. I just cleaned there. Get your greasy gun off my floor. No, my nose, when you create the characters and design the surroundings, anything's a possibility. The Sims. It's a new game every day. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The official Star Wars Fact Files, the definitive Star Wars collectible magazine series, uncovered the Dark Lords of the Sith. Like the mask, all of them. Relive the battles, examine the weapons, the vehicles, the technology. For the first time ever, discover the full story of the Star Wars galaxy with this original Star Wars cosmology wall chart. The official Star Wars Fact Files, issue one, only 50 pence at newsagents now. Think of all the great movies and games there have been this year. Movies like The Mummy Returns, Bridget Jones's Diary, Hannibal, Rush Hour 2, and games like World Rally Championship. Now think of this. Rent any combination of three DVDs, videos, or games, and pay for only two. And keep them for two nights. Blockbuster's special offer. Three for two for two nights. Blockbuster, bringing entertainment home. Find a place where you can see, and then you can cross easily. <gasps> and now it's alright, it's okay. Make sure you have looked both ways. And when it's clear, nothing's to fear. When you use your eyes and ears, whether it's the country or whether it's the city, you're staying alive, staying alive. Whenever you're across, and just stop, look and listen, and we're staying alive, staying alive. Greetings, etc. Generic expression of gratitude, followed by teasing mention of what's to come. Ditto, accompanied by girly smile. That's conversational shorthand. Wow, that's a late ad break. Yeah, we so we we come back from uh, our very very late ad break, and there's uh, not much left of this show to do. So you'll be thankful to know. Um, and we get essentially our next news section of the show. So we've had our, a feature, a review, news, reviews. And I guess this is the next news section before we get another review before the next news section. Because, Luke, you know that console that was the proud owner of this week's Game of the Week? The Dreamcast, the original next-generation console, looks like it's going to be the first 128-bit machine to be consigned to the technological dustbin. As 2001 may be the last we hear of the Dreamcast, we thought we'd have a look at the console's top-selling games. Part chart, part obituary. A chibituary, if you will. It's dead. It's very dead. This is part chart, part obituary. 
let's take a look at its top selling games, which you want to talk about a list that makes me feel like a dog that's just been shown a card trick. This is a list which has me going, care? Yeah, well, when I I looked up, you know, Sega Dreamcast best-selling games, and I don't think it's very reflective of the five games that we get here because four of the five best-selling games were NFL games. But... This is apparently the the best selling games for the console. I think the the most damning thing is that one of those came out in 1999. In fact, actually, well, you know, Sonic Adventure is is one of them. I just think it's it's kind of remarkable that just last week's episode, one year earlier in in our timeline here, it's the death of the Dreamcast, uh, a console that they said might still manage to hang around with the PS2 once that comes out. But man, once that PS2 comes out really really was the death of that console and this it's almost it's these are its final throws particularly with the launch of the gamecube coming out early next year and with the xbox coming out see i did think i mean we'll 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 go through the list and i'll get to this when we get to it so number five dead or alive 2 let's cut down to what it is it's all about the tits that's what dead or alive 2 is about scantily clad women bouncing there was a bit of the uh the, the lad culture uh aspect of the show kind of seeping in and out you know particularly like you could tell who their target audience was by the way that the copy had been written uh but this is the most of the laddishness that the show really goes down to and i guess that's probably because like ian lee almost doesn't feel like he fits within that mold of like a, a dominic diamond would have done or an emily booth would have done but he is just like this is the most laddish the show sounds which is when he's like sure it's got a great fighting system and a great level design but really it's about buxom ladies beating up other buxom ladies at number four is sonic adventure sega's hedgehog mascot has come on leaps and bounds since he appeared on the sega genesis console in 1991 Sonic Adventure may be 3D, but at the end of the day, what we're talking about here is still collecting rings and defeating end-of-level baddies and Sonic's nemesis, Dr. Robotnik. I mean, I, I've, I've got a question, Alex, in this one. I've got a question. The, the, the copy that she was given here, where it was like, Sonic has come on leaps and bounds since the Genesis. Come on, mate. Like, I, I, it's come on leaps and bounds, like, as if those games were all shite, and now we've finally got a good Sonic game. No, I think the the general consensus was those are all the good games. This was a half-decent 3D effort. Mate, they can't all be good as Sonic Spinball. Apparently not. But I will say that this game is actually now more highly regarded than it was at the time. But that's because we've had 30 shit 3D Sonic games come out since. So everyone's gone like, actually Sonic Adventure wasn't as bad as we all thought it was then. And I mean, personally, I preferred Sonic Adventure too. I think most people do, yeah. Yeah, but... The presence of it on a top five, that makes sense. Not nearly as much as the next one does, though, because, hey, Crazy Taxi. While so many driving games opt to play the SIM card, Crazy Taxi decided to play the Crazy Card. The more you drive like a joyrider, the better it gets. The music's good and the passengers scream and the pedestrians run for cover. I guess deep down, everyone wants to be a Travis Bickle. This is no simulator racer. This is a crazy racer with an amazing soundtrack great game yeah i love the fact that they say like rather than being a sim which is what every other racing game is trying to do at this point with the you know the the success of gran turismo this is just a straight up arcade game and it's dead good for it and again this is another one where the sequel is already out there which does make this feel like a best-selling of all time list because otherwise you'd have thought if it was a more recent list, Crazy Taxi 2 would have been the one listed, not the first Crazy Taxi. It has to be an all-time list, 
going by what our number one is. And actually the fact that Sonic Adventure was number four. Far from being a simple PlayStation to Dreamcast copy or an update, Resident Evil codenamed Veronica is hailed by many as the best in the series. No surprise then to find the game at the number two spot. Got more blood in it than a Carrie High School reunion. Number two, not just a port or an upgrade, it's Resident Evil, Codename Veronica. It's a great game. Yeah, oddly they called it Codename Veronica when it's just Code Veronica. It was almost like a, a bit of a, a mishap on their part. But I like the fact that they refer to this as, as healed by many as one of the best in the series, which like at the time I don't remember it being so. But when I was kind of reading up about it, know a lot of the reviews at the time were saying this is the best Resident Evil yet and the reason for that is because it's the first Resident Evil to not have tank controls and that is what a lot of people nowadays I think when people look back on Code Veronica it's just it's fine it's a totally fine game people would much rather play 3, 2 or, or the original or you know even Resident Evil 4 or so but at the time here in context the fact that it didn't have tank controls was a revolutionary step forward in the franchise to be like, ah, finally, it's not a clunky game anymore. It is Ergo, the best in the series. But yeah, time has not been as kind to it as, as sort of people's thoughts have been to the original trilogy. And there are still multiple ways to play it today. In fact, I'm looking at it, I'm going, I might boot up the GameCube version at some point in the near future. I do like Code Veronica, and I remember playing it on my Dreamcast. It was in that big bundle of games when I got my Dreamcast cheap, which was not long before this episode would have aired. In fact, it was one of the last things I got before I lost my job in the dot-com crash. Last thing on, on Code Veronica... It's the last, or it's the only Resident Evil game. No, 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 no Code Veronica remake. No remake, but there was an HD remaster that came out for the PS3 and the 360. So not a full remake, but there was a remaster. More, I meant more than a remake then, um, in terms of... Because that's what Capcom are just looking to do, is because once you've got... It, basically what they have now have is they can just resell all those original uh, Resident Evil games on every new console that comes out. So when the PlayStation 7 comes out, they have got a newer version they can release and just pile out again for another $7.99. And suckers like me probably will throw down that eight quid just so I can play it again. And me. But Luke, that's four of the five. I mean, there's been some interesting titles there. There's also been some top titles. So whatever is number one has got to be pretty monumental but looking like the cat that got the cream in the dreamcast game of the year chart is star wars episode one jedi power battles as the name suggests the game involves jedi power battles your wits skill and telekinetic powers go up against droids and evildoers in that galaxy far far away each level relates specifically to the film this is the game you are looking for. Fuck yes, this is the best star wars game that has ever been made i was so beyond thrilled that Jedi Power Battles was our number one here. I fucking love this game. This game rules ass. This game is awesome. My my summer 2000 was spent playing this game with my cousin ad nauseum. Fuck that final level. It's dead hard. But this game rules. I'm not going to speak to the quality of the game or dip, or dismiss the quality of the game how the fuck is this the number one selling game on the dreamcast because it's the best star wars game ever made ash i'll repeat my question 
How is this the best-selling Dreamcast game when you look at titles that have also been available? That are el- How has this sold more than any Sonic game? Because it's the best Star Wars game ever made. You keep saying that like it means something. <laughs> well, it's got to mean something. If it's the in the same way that Code Veronica is the best Resident Evil game ever made, that got it to the number two spot. This is the best Star Wars game ever made. That gets it to the number one position. This game's superb. Star Wars, colon episode one, colon Jedi power battles, brackets part two, is absolutely fan-flippantastic. Thrilled that it got the number one spot. Well-deserved and well-earned. Although, I do want to point out, just to raise your ire, that in Game Informer's top 30 Star Wars games list in 2016, do you know what this ranked? Probably about 28. 30. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it, it's not as beloved as it is by me and the summer of 2000. Uh, but, you know, it, people like me, we've got nostalgic love for this and Mace Windu uh, and Plo Koon with his orange lightsaber because that was our duo of choice, me and my cousin. He was Mace Windu and I was Plo Koon. And like anytime I saw Plo Koon in future movies, I was like, there he is, where's his orange lightsaber? Boo, here's a blue lightsaber. Get out, George Lucas, you don't know actual canon. He's got an orange lightsaber. I played Jedi Power Battles, summer 2000. So that's our alleged top five selling games of all time. Alleged, because I'm, I'm questioning some of the veracity, no matter if it's the best Star Wars game of all time. I'm still questioning it, Luke. I, I would wager, like a lot on this show, it, that's what they were told. But then... Man, you want to talk about a backhanded compliment. Alex calls the Dreamcast the Betamax of the next generation. I mean, yeah, it almost basically on paper, it's more powerful. It has the online gaming. It's got all of the next gen features, but it was beaten out by, ironically, Sony. But there's no time to be sentimental because Ian just pisses on the embers of the heart by going oh, it's just a plastic consumer product stop being silly stop anthropomorphizing your consoles it's really funny when we kind of look back at that ian lee interview where he talked about how he gave max Payne a very uh disparaging review and that was looked not so fondly by the viewers but also the the makers of max Payne. so he then gave a favorable review to a wrestling game as a sort of almost like a make do alex pulls no punches here with new york race new york race is a futuristic racing game that's loosely based on a high-profile film, The Fifth Element. It features hovering ships, stunning locations, and more adrenaline than a bungee jump on amphetamines. Well, we've heard that one before. 1999's Phantom Menace tried this very same tactic. Take the only worthwhile scene in a relatively poor film, turn it into a racing game, and suck it dry. She pulls no punches on The Fifth Element by calling it a bad film, and I'm just like, whoa, time out. Fifth Element was good. And like, not just me going, oh, this is a good film. Critically, it did very well. It won awards. I can see how it would be. It's a divisive film, though, because it's very Luke Besson. It is very French. I mean, that's because it was made by a French filmmaker. That's, that's what I mean. That's why I said it's very Luke Besson. It is very French. Um, so it is. I get, I get where Alex is, is, is coming from on, on that side of things. Also, again, if you're trying to look at it, it could be perceived as highly pretentious which it is a little bit um because it's very french it's got bruce willis in it it can't be that pretentious that dude doesn't do pretentious he wears vests including in this movie he speaks two language uh, two languages english and bad english <laughs> he is it's one, of, it's one of the best lines of the film uh i do like her little into this though which is that what this game is doing is taking a fun element of the fifth element 
the hover cars basically in the hover taxi cab and turning it into a game much like how star wars did it with the pod racing from episode one a video game company took a fun element from a movie and tried to turn it into a whole game but what they've done here is they've taken a fun element of a movie and tried to put it into a game but have sucked all of the soul out of it and made a game that is too hard to play and not fun to pick up. It may not shock you to learn this was the second game based on The Fifth Element. The first was kind of a more normal action-adventure type game from 1998. It was also pretty poorly received. But this one, New York Race, it's very, very weird that this is coming out in 2001 going 2002 to be based on a 1997 science fiction movie. It's almost like it had the same development cycle as Alien Resurrection. Maybe it's something about video game licenses based on films by French filmmakers. Who knows? I don't know if this game was genuinely a case of, oh, that seems cool, let's make it a video game, or we have this game, can we slap a license on it? That's more my thinking, yeah. We already had a hover game that we were making. Turns out we've actually got the Fifth Element license laying here. Let's take some of the characters that are from the Fifth Element, even characters that aren't even really named on screen, and we'll put them into this game, and that will be, and we can then just release a Fifth Element game with an engine we've already built. It was not well received. Like, I think Eurogamer gave it 6 out of 10, so it doesn't even get that 70% marks. Alex is definitely not a fan saying it's too hard it's not pick up and play it's pick up and get a degree in thumb bending there's no sense of speed my favorite line of the episode it's a bastard to get to the end of a level but that's kind of a review and now we're back to news again looking forward to next april with more glee than the tax man it's time for sneaky peek hey man hang 10 get gnarly with your goofy foot and cut sick as you check out the awesomeness of everything that's trans world surf for the xbox dude yeah Shut up and speak English. What Alex is trying to say is that Microsoft's Plastic Breeze block will be releasing an extreme sports series in autumn of 2002. Yeah, this is more of a sneak peek section. This is a previews section, I guess. Like The, the first thing we've been talking about is a couple of launch titles for the Xbox and then, oddly, just a GameCube game that's coming out next year. Yeah, Alex starts by throwing a bunch of slang at us. Ian says to shut up and speak English. Alex has one of my favourite Alex moments of the episode, which is flipping him off with a kiss, which is just funny. Superb. And we take our first look at Transworld Surf, which was released on the GameCube, the PS2 and the Xbox in a time span between November 2001 and March 2003. And not only was this a title that spanned multiple consoles of this generation, it was also one of the early releases under the then revamped Atari label. So talk about game companies never fully bank going bankrupt and disappearing. And I mean, the game looks fine. There's a karma meter, there's sharks apparently. Yeah, it's trying to capitalize on the Tony Hawk's thing. When Tony Hawk's became a hit, every developer under the sun was looking for their version of extreme sports that you could just do Tony Hawk's but a surfboard, Tony Hawk's but a snowboard, Tony Hawk's but a BMX. Do you know what I mean? Like they were basically just looking for everything. I mean, I'm pretty sure we're not that far away from there being a scooter game that is Tony Hawk's but a scooter. This is just the latest one. It's Tony Hawk's but you're on a surfboard. We then move on to a game that Alex describes as one of the most important games of the Xbox launch. 
and I cannot tell if she's being serious. One of the most important games for the Xbox launch is Shrek. Now, there haven't been very many characters throughout history whose farts have been used as deadly weapons. But then again, there haven't been very many ogres who were born and bred in festering putrid swamps. It's one of the Xbox's launch titles. You take control of the great green one as he travels through four worlds, 12 levels, and 36 missions during 80 hours of gameplay. I think there is a world in which she is. Because Shrek is a massive, massive movie. Huge. And not even just like with the benefit of hindsight, because it, Shrek is so big that they are still making money off of Shrek to this day, and they're going to make another Shrek movie uh, in the coming years because Shrek is just this DreamWorks guy. I think it cannot be understated enough how much Shrek saved DreamWorks animation. Because DreamWorks Animation got off to a ropey old start um, after uh, Katzenberg left Disney and went to form DreamWorks with with Spielberg and, and Geffen. Shrek just completely changed. Shrek turned the tide around for them. Shrek completely saved, raised that sinking ship. It was a huge hit for them. And I, I wonder if Alex's point is more that it's not just that it's a massive movie and you've got the the, the license tie-in for it, but it's more you can get kids in. And if you can get kids in, kids will buy more games for the Xbox, even though if it is a console that is trying to market itself to older gamers. If you can get kids involved, that will also be a big boon for your sales. Unfortunately, the game's shit. Yeah, that's not going to help matters. And when I, I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, when they were talking about the Xbox coming out, you know, later on next year, if these are the first two titles that you're showing off, Transworld Surf and Shrek, this doesn't look like two killer apps that are going to make you want to pick up an Xbox. You, I mean, you said Halo, right? Halo is the game that is the killer app that will make you want to buy an Xbox. It sure as shit ain't these two titles. I mean, people want to complain about the launch ranges for the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X. They should really take some history lessons because, boy howdy, both of those consoles had way better lineups than some of this dreck coming out earlier. You can almost see why people thought that the Xbox was going to fail out the gates. I mean, to be, to be fair, the Xbox was not the success that the 360 was. No, it wasn't. Oh, yeah. I mean, much like Shrek changed the game for Dream, uh, DreamWorks, 360 changed the game for the Xbox. But it is a launch title. It's got that going for it, which is nice. And arguably, it may still be a better game than what we see next. Forget all that cloak and dagger nonsense about secret game development, because we can unveil new footage of the Cape Crusader on the GameCube. And for someone who's been fighting crime for over 60 years, this pensioner still looks rather sprightly. The plot of Batman Dark Tomorrow is the usual jiggery-pokery about an evil mastermind, a plan for world dominance, and an orphan with a major crime-fighting chip on his shoulder. But from what we've seen so far, this may well prove to be the best of the series to date. The makers have enlisted the help of real Hollywood stuntmen to help animate some of the set pieces in the game. Look out for some fantastically grimy-looking playing environments like the sewers, the downtown area, and notorious Arkham Asylum. Batman Dark Tomorrow will be available on the GameCube when the console is released over here next autumn. God, this is hilarious. This is so funny, because when this came up, I was like, oh, this is so funny. It's Dark Tomorrow. And then Ian says, it's lining up to be the best Batman game yet. Uh, wah, 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 wah. Because this is thought to be not just the worst Batman game ever made, it's often thought to be one of the worst video games uh, ever made. 
Uh, it's so bad, ports were cancelled for, for other consoles. This was a game that was meant to be what Arkham Asylum was later for Batman. That was the original scope, that was the original scale, but they kept scaling it back, they kept scaling it back, they started broadening the amount of consoles they were going to release it on. Yeah, you will not find a good review for this game anywhere. Uh, Game Informer gave the GameCube version 0.75 out of 10. That's great. When you even break your... When you break your scales to review a game, you know you've got a bit of a winner on your hands. They basically said the gameplay was incomprehensible and littered with bugs. Apparently it'll be a launch title, so the GameCube's looking to be a strong launch lineup that can definitely go head-to-head with the Xbox. And for no reason, Alex attacks Ian with a Pikachu. That's because she's still got uh, those, that PTSD from bits where they were forced to talk about Pokemon. So anytime a Pokemon thing comes near her, she just has to throw it far from herself. I mean, she was going through a Pokemon cards earlier. Well, she thought it was something else. She thought she was going to be sitting down for a nice game of poker. Not Pokemon. That's ah. exactly that. Uh-huh. Uh, but I mean, the reason why she's so distracted by this is she doesn't even know what's on next week's show. Oh, well, it's getting on for Whoa, nearly... yes, it is. What have we got next week? I don't know. Ah, well, I do, you see. We've got James Bond, Jack and Daxter, Worms, and more on the Xbox. And don't forget our competition on the website at www.channel4.com forward slash thumbbandits. I think this is one of the nine episodes that is still out there, so there is a chance at some point in the future we may also look at this episode. Like, don't get me wrong, if ever a complete set of all 13, or possibly 14, or however many episodes of Thumb Bandits appeared, I wouldn't be against doing a small run on those episodes, but I would need to know they're complete and they're in the right order. I would agree, because I... I said this at the top of the episode, I enjoyed this so much more than Bits. Bits just was a, almost a bit too counterculture uh, for, for my liking, and a bit too wacky, a bit too dismissive of, of, of the, the, the video game genre. At least it felt like it was. It was felt like a, that's a, for you know, nerds and shit, but we're cool, right? There's still a little bit of that within Thumb Bandits, but I think Ian Lee's presence just really hammers home like the, no, this is all, and actually, you know, Alex for that matter as well, of no, no, gamers are cool and playing games is cool and we're, we're cool because we're playing video games together. I really like the, the analysis you gave earlier. It's bad influence after dark. And yeah. it's got a real, real stench of, of bad influence of bad is in a in a very positive way. I enjoyed this episode, and of the four episodes I also watched of Thumb Bandits leading up to us finding the episode we were going to review, I enjoyed those as well. So yeah, I mean, like I I had a really good time with Thumb Bandits. Uh, I I've got a lot of fond memories of the show. I think it's it's kind of funny to go back and see that it was so written negatively about but also massively unsurprising that it was written so negatively about because that is just what the internet did and the internet just hated anything and there were a lot of people that were just disgruntled that it wasn't games master games master was not on tv anymore and ergo anything that comes after it is instantly shit it's when you kind of read the feedback that thumb bandits got at the time crikey it does enough remind me of the feedback that the games master reboot got when it came out a couple of years ago yeah period feedback is period feedback the one thing i would definitely take at at this point in time is we're looking at what came after games master this is now our second episode neither of the shows we've covered are trying to be games master they are trying to be to some degree their own show 
which I appreciate. I appreciate that Channel 4 didn't just pick someone and go, hey, can you make Games Master in all but name? Yeah, and, and I, I really like it for that. Like, I, I really like the, the chemistry between Alex and Ian. And I think it's because you we know a little bit more about the making of the show because Ian's spoken about it and Alex has spoken about it, this, that, and the other. And, like, the production issues are more known now. When you watch the shows with that knowledge, you can see how almost Frankenstein's together the shows feel. But I can tell you at the time, when I was 16 years old watching this, I did not spot that whatsoever. I'm kind of sad we only got a handful of episodes, and I'm certainly sad we don't have the entire run, because I'd be very curious to see how the show did change between those first handful of episodes, and how it went on an actual full progression towards the end. You never know, though. Things appear from VHS archives all the time. A whole bunch of these episodes, the most complete versions out there, are just people finding them on random VHS tapes. So hopefully hopefully we will see some more as for what episode is going to come next um we're not going to say what it is um it, it, we kind of have sort of hinted at uh, what it's going to be uh, on previous episodes uh but we're trying to work out the order of these episodes that we're going to do we want to try and make sure that these are as perfectly in timeline order as we can possibly make them indeed we are continuing to truck onwards and in fact looking at the dream sheet right now we do have some quite cool things lined up. Yeah, some really interesting ones in there. You know, this this our, our original plan was uh, just to do a handful of these and then go straight into a, a series eight. But after doing bits and thumb bandits, we kind of had this feeling of just like, no, let's do more of these. Let's look at all of the shows that came out, though, at least the ones that we can get our hands on anyway, because I think it'd be really cool to get a, a strong breadth, not just doing three episodes and then do When Games Attack. There's a whole heap of other shows that we could look at before we get to series eight. Because it was, you know, 20 years but i think that's going to wrap it up for this episode thank you all so much for listening you all rule you can find us on social media on twitter at underconsolepod, on instagram at under.console and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com and if you want to chat with us chat with other listeners other fans of gaming culture old and new you can do so over on our discord and if you want to watch me play games badly you can do so over on our twitch channel which is on twitch.tv forward slash under console pod. And if you want to support this podcast necessarily and get next week's episode one week early and ad free, head on over to patreon.com forward slash under console pod to get access to under console nation, our monthly community show. And Ash, you're back at the £10 level. You get a little bit extra. What is that? We get a still to be confirmed Patreon pack because we've run out of the classics and Luke we're out of the golden joystick era I don't know what to do and a shout out to those £10 backers Adam D Adam Warrington Alexis Andrew Cummings Andrew Greenwood Andy Arcadia Wild Bill Chris Chrissy Two Sticks Colin David Palmer David White Gordon Aiken Gordon Brands, Gordon Dempster, Harriet Mangagirl, I Am Cheadle, Ian Roberts, Ian Williams, Jamie Smith, Joe McGonagall, Joe Mitchell, Kevin, Kylie, Lawrence, Liam, Link, Luke, Mark, Matty Boo, Misha, Nick, Bill, Retrofund for Everyone, Reese, Rich, Pemberton, Richard Downer, Sean, Selena, Simon, Super Sexy Dave Fisher, The Amazing Cliff, Tom Dylan McEvoy, Tom S, William Zanderthal, and Zach. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Good night.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 